0: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. In all my years of covering pop culture and Black culture specifically, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the limits of representation. As satisfying as it is to slip into Wakanda for a few hours, I don't have any illusions about how a movie like Black Panther will materially change my life. But those images still hold power and stoke conversation beyond the cineplex. So I'm really excited to be able to talk about a documentary that completely blew my mind with its interrogation of how trans people show up on screen and how that affects trans people in real life. The film is called Framing Agnes.
1: Framing Agnes is coming in like a wrecking ball to so many of the ways we've been coached as a culture that's just getting used to the idea that there are trans people in a massive public way. That's historian Jules Gill peterson who's also the narrator in Framing Agnes. We've been asked to believe that, well, the problem, right, is that historically, trans people have been sad and isolated and alone. They haven't been able to tell their own stories. They've been missing. They've only ever been subjects. They've been studied by doctors and they've been the subjects of media exposés. But as soon as you give them the microphone, Everything is better. We'll tell good stories, trans people will tell them, and all will be well. But we can't just walk in and do that. It doesn't work that way.
0: Framing Agnes brings to life a set of interviews done by researchers at UCLA in the late 1950s. For years, they were buried in the case files of Harold Garfinkel, one of the sociologists who was part of the university's gender identity clinic. And there were transcripts of someone who was already infamous in trans history, a woman named Agnes. Agnes was a trans woman who misled doctors so she could get gender-affirming
1: surgery, care that would have been really hard to access otherwise. So on the one hand, she's been this story for you know, sociologists, doctors, psychologists about how untrustworthy trans people are because Agnes went to UCLA and she lied and she got access to things that she wanted and then she came back and she had the gall to tell them that. But then later, there was this kind of reclamation, I think, by a lot of trans people who romanticize that and say, hey, she was like a rebel, right? She told lies to get things that were almost impossible in the 50s and so she's sort of our inspiration about how we survive, you know, as trans people.
0: But Agnes's story wasn't the only one in those transcripts either. There were other trans people who were interviewed at UCLA and whose stories until now had never been heard. And in the film, they do this by having actors perform the transcripts
2: from those interviews as if they're on a talk show. We're really meditating on the ways in which the frame is set around trans people. That's director
0: and producer Chase Joint. He also plays the part of the talk show host slash interviewer in the film.
2: It used to be so simple. You were either a boy or you were a girl. Growing up in the 1940s, Agnes always knew she was different.
0: Framing Agnes toggles back and forth between staged reenactments of these transcripts and interviews with the actors and filmmakers breaking down what these stories mean in real life. Throughout the documentary, we,
1: the audience, are made to question how stories about trans lives are told. What is it about how we turn trans people into compelling storylines? And how do we hold that mirror back up to American culture, to American medicine? But even if you haven't seen Framing Agnes, this conversation really made me rethink
0: the entire documentary format and how we rely on history to tell us about ourselves. We talk about the constraints of representation, the power dynamics of interviews, and the nature of truth itself. Y'all, I will be thinking about this chat for a really, really long time. So we'll get down to it after a quick break.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Duckhorn Portfolio, Napa, California. Founded in 1976, the Duckhorn Portfolio's 10 luxury wineries include Pinot Noir powerhouses Calera and Goldeneye, and household favorites Duckhorn Vineyards and Decoy. This holiday season, elevate your celebrations with some of wine country's most coveted wines. Discover more at duckhorn.com NPR.
0: Chase, Jules, welcome to It's Been a Minute.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having us. Oh my gosh, it's it's totally our pleasure. To start off, talk to me about these transcripts that the film is based around. What was the significance of that discovery? Jules, we'll hear from you first.
1: You know, we've had this story of Agnes, the young trans woman who went to UCLA for a long time. Her story's been told many, many times, both in sort of medical and research communities and in trans communities. But all of a sudden, there was this whole array of other people very different from her who had gone to see the same people at the same time. So it really represented kind of one of those sort of moments where, you know, you stumble upon something and you're like, oh, this is too good to keep to myself. Um, But actually, really complicated to think about what would you do if all of a sudden, instead of one story standing in for 1950s trans people, you have maybe seven or eight. But where does that get us? And actually... What is the problem in sort of trying to make those stories do something that Agnes's story hasn't been able to do yet?
0: Mm, Chase, I see you nodding vigorously. Let me know what's on your mind. And also, tell me about what that moment of discovery was like.
2: Yeah, I'm nodding because Jules is illuminating so many of the central tensions of the project. I think we have all been born of a culture that imagines that archives give us access to some kind of perhaps historical truth or moment we could hold on to to help us make sense of ourselves. And I think we as a collective in the film are suspicious of these archives and already recognize in our trans-historical kin that they were telling very particular versions of their own life histories and their own experiences because they were interfacing with a gatekeeping medical establishment which was designed to keep people like them out and away from the kinds of services and access points that they needed. And so we don't approach the archive imagining that we are revealing some incredibly important truthful version of a trans history that we had not had access to prior, but rather probe the very nature of the engagement itself. Think critically together about questions. Think critically about the role that questions play in dictating the kind of information that we Gain access to. Mm, That's a really good point. It's like the context, that medical context,
0: and the types of questions that might be asked doesn't lead to revelation or true revelation. Mm. And so it's like you have to have an investment in continuing to question the context, to question the questions so that you can start to fill out a larger picture.
2: Precisely. And if I can pick up the last part of your question, which was, you know, how did it feel when you arrived in this place? We were elated and then immediately filled with dread precisely because of these questions. But do you ever feel embarrassed by your situation? I've been in many rooms with many doctors. I'm not embarrassed. But they're going to remove incredibly important parts of your body. (laughs) Why are you laughing? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you just put it in a little box so I can pet it and keep it for the rest of my life? And I think it was upon recognizing that the kinds of questions being asked by Garfinkel and his contemporaries were so similar to the questions being thrown out of the lips of people like Jerry Springer or Geraldo or Sally Jesse Raphael.
3: You look the same to me, but I can't tell. We're dying to know. Did you have the operation? Should I
0: tell you? Yeah,
2: that we were able to do this kind of work. Hmm. I want to back up
0: a little bit. What what has Agnes's story signified in the past? And and where's the correction or complication that you want to make in the film?
1: Well, I I would almost put it this way. You know that phrase that the truth is stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think part of what that might mean for trans people is that like our lives are so compelling sometimes that they just make for unbelievable storytelling. And That's a pretty high stakes way to walk through the world, right? We seem different. We have to go through all of these hoops, you know, to live our lives. We face so many kinds of barriers. But I think if we actually zoom out a little further, the reason that trans people's lives are almost so fictionally rich and almost bigger than real life is not because there's something intrinsic to being trans that's like that. It's because the world puts us in situations where we have to live out dramatic (laughs) storylines, right? And so I think what the film is trying to do is sort of slow that down. Down, kind of pick apart the moving pieces of that and say, well, hold on, if we can't actually find out whether Agnes was, you know, proof that lying is bad or lying is amazing, <laughs> then what? what is it that her experience tells us? And so even for us as trans people, it puts us in a really difficult situation because, of course, we want connection to the past. We want to know where we come from. But we actually can't know the answer to that, in part because of how we've been made into these sorts of larger-than-life narratives. Hmm. So
0: so in these UCLA case files, there's Agnes' story, but also the stories of Georgia, Barbara, Henry, Denny, and Jimmy, the other people who were interviewed. These conversations are reimagined within a talk show format. And something I think a lot about, even just with this job, interviewing people, I think there's something that medical contexts— and talk show contexts have in common. And it's like these very prescribed
1: roles and very prescribed power dynamics. Yeah, it's like... You know, I grew up in the nineties watching trans people on Jerry Springer and Sally Jesse Raphael, and that was probably the first exposure I ever had to the idea of trans people. I don't really know what it did to me, but it just made one thing feel so obvious to me like, oh, this is what it means to be trans right and so the film asks in one part like well what if what if Agnes was on a talk show in the fifties right? What if these other mm. people whose transcripts we are digging into what if they were on a talk show in the 50s, like the Mike Wallace show. And it doesn't matter that they literally weren't because they were. They were sitting down at UCLA talking to these really credentialed, you know, well-dressed white guys in sociology. That is a kind of talk show. And we're still doing that today. And I think one of the things that's so intense to watch on screen is you see our actors. You watch Zachary Drucker or Angelica Ross or Jen Richards. Um, You watch them and they know how to get into this role. They know how to be these people from the 50s, not because they're the same as them, not because they see themselves in them necessarily in some one-to-one relation, but because they know how to play that role. They know how to step on stage, they know how to have the spotlight on them, and they know what it's like to be on the talk show of American culture. And that is a place where trans people are today in some ways even more intensely than they were in the 50s. I think it testifies to how even in the most intensely- unfair moments where you have no power, right? You're in a doctor's office. Your doctor holds all the cards. You're on a talk show that's playing you as a kind of spectacle or playing you for laughs, right? The host has all the cards. But in that moment, trans people know exactly how to get something in through their performance. It turns out, Trans people do hold a couple of the cards, but the deck has been stacked against them this whole time. And I think there's a way that the film even asks the audience, you know, like, hey, have you ever walked on screen? Are you behind the camera? Could you ever be the host or would you always be the subject? And these are really live questions. They're about how we produce stories about whole populations of people that then actually affect their real lives. That's just a situation I think that's like almost very uniquely American, right? It's very much television, right? We really invented and exported this thing around the world that that now is so kind of normal. I think sometimes we forget just how bizarre it is that we consume people like this.
0: And that is absolutely right. It's bizarre. It is uniquely American. It's an American. I was like, "All oh, right, right. We did export that. Very good point. Very good point. Yeah. You know, thinking more about, about this role of the host, Chase, I, I wanted to ask you about playing the role of that like white cis interviewer, half medical quote unquote expert, half talk show host, but outside of the reenactments, you're interviewing Jules and the actors, as well. What was it like to play the role of the interviewer in a project that that is so much about the dynamics of interviewing?
2: Yeah, so complicated and unsettling to recognize that for all the ways in which I might approach collaboration using the words like democratization, these Mm. things that feel very true in my gut, ultimately. I am the one making those edits and making those cuts and choosing what Jules offers in the edit. Ultimately, that authority is mine. And there are all kinds of ways that I try to undercut that authority, Mm -hmm. even in post-production. But ultimately, I am the person asking those questions and have to think long and hard about the ways in which I am reproducing the power dynamics that I am seeking to critique. In some ways, Jules arrives as our most trusted interlocutor. Someone who is reaching toward the audience to say, grab my hand, I'm going to walk with you and help you interpret some of the things that are happening. But what Jules is also doing, in my opinion, is holding me to account by walking toward the apparatus of the film as a subject, someone who sits outside of the UCLA archive and library and says, this is about me too, I think we all start to kind of join hands in the muck of authority and hopefully unsettle who gets control ultimately the end of the film. And so one of the things that we're trying to think is, If it is impossible to break the frame, how can we try to think together about how to to wrestle with that impossibility? And I think it's through a kind of experimentation, and that can be a performative experimentation, but also intellectual experimentation, where Jules can say, what happens when we think about the power of invisibility? What happens when opacity becomes a powerful political tool?
1: Josie,
0: do you have anything you wanted to add
1: to that? Oh, oh okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like we carry these histories that um, have formed us inside out and turned us inside out over our own lives. And so it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good for Chase to, to, to play the role of Mike Wallace in the same way that, weirdly enough, it doesn't necessarily feel good for me to walk in and say, well, now I'm the talking head expert. But then I looked around the room and I saw this team. I saw Chase, I saw Kristen, I saw this team of queer and trans people. And all of a sudden there is this level of trust and this willingness in me to say, I'm going to risk going into the thing I'm worried about. Like me speaking the way I spoke on camera and telling stories the way I told them and being vulnerable about how I feel as a researcher and a trans woman of color. All of that is happening in real time. It transformed who I am. And I think that has something to do with relieving the burden of putting everything on one person's shoulders. It's not all on Chase's shoulders as director. It's not all on any one of our actors' shoulders on camera. It's not on any one of our interviews off the set of the talk show. And it's not on my shoulders to tell the truth as the narrator and to get us somewhere at the end of the film that we can tie up in a bow. And that, I think, is really, really, really powerful. And I'm not exaggerating at all to say it has changed my life. That is so powerful. I'm going to be thinking about
0: y'all's responses to that question for at least a couple weeks. The idea of Mm. how, like, decentralizing the power of the camera, (laughs) the host, decentralizing the power of those roles and sharing the responsibility Mm. among a team. It changes the final product, of course, but it changes, like, how the story is told and the experience of telling the story. Coming up. I talked to Chase and Jules about the other stories in Framing Agnes and why demanding truth from trans people gets us nowhere. Stick around. I want to take a little bit of a turn. Jules, in, in the film, you talk about Christine Jorgensen, who was an incredibly famous trans woman in the 50s around the same time as these interviews were recorded. And Jules, you said that Christine learned to use the media in a particular way To make a life for herself, she had to, quote, lean into the fact that everyone wants a piece of her. Can you unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I think, first of all, to to most people who maybe have only vaguely heard the name Christine Jorgensen, she had been a soldier in World War II. And then she, you know, after the war, wanted to transition and found out that basically there was nowhere to do that in the U.S. And so she had to go abroad to Denmark, um, and she comes back and is swarmed by the press at the airport. Christine Jorgensen, who used to answer to George, creates quite a stir as she returns home to New York from Copenhagen. Christine hit
0: the headlines following the series of operations in Denmark that transformed her from a boy into a girl.
3: I'm very happy to be back, and I don't have any plans at
1: the moment. And I thank you all for coming, but I think it's too much. She was the perfect image for a culture hungry for a story, right? Here is this blonde bombshell, they called her, but who used to be a GI. I think back to what that must have felt like for Christine Jorgensen. It's really hard to know because everything she did in public had to be so carefully produced, right? I mean, the questions being thrown at her were so inappropriate. Like the 50s is a pretty censored buttoned up era, but you know, they're asking questions about things that do not we don't think people used to talk mm. about, like sex.
3: Speaking of- From a medical and a physiological standpoint, do you have female organs?
1: Christine comes back and takes the world by storm, but also it wakes trans people up in a new way. They start writing thousands of letters to her, like, look, I'm nothing like you, but I am whatever you are. Even though she's unrepresentative, right? And this is an important lesson in the film because Agnes is also unrepresentative. Even though Christine can't tell us the truth of trans people, she can show us a dilemma that rings true, even if it rings true in a million different ways. And I think there's just something about, I just imagine that the weight the hotness of those lights, the the intrusion of those microphones, the badgering of the press yelling at you as you're getting off an airplane, that just feels, even though I've never been in that situation, I just, I get it. I get it. And there's something really enduring to me about
2: our attachment to Christine Jorgensen for what she can tell us about that problem that we're still mm. living with. And I was just going to add that if one were to Google all of our talent, you would be invited into an extraordinary playground of films and photography and poetry and nonfiction writing authored and created by each of our actors. People are still recognizing that if we are going to lose control of our narratives, it is actually through art and culture that we can intervene
1: and just think about like how much trans people are framed in terms of deficit in our culture. Oh, so sad. They have a medical condition. Oh, they suffer. They experience all this depression or, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being trans, but it's a sad life. You know, it's so hard in the world. Enough with that deficit. What if the real truth is that trans people have extra talent because of the way that we have to move through the world? And that to me is one of the inaugural lessons of Christine Jorgensen that's a little buried.
0: Mmm. Now I want to take a turn toward a different interview subject, someone whose transcripts were found at UCLA. Jules, you said it's hard to sit with Georgia, the only Black trans woman in these transcripts.
1: There are some real tough questions about what she lets slip, about how hard her life really is, and the way that she tries to package that for him so he can understand it. Because there's a color line separating the two of them. What about Georgia's story was so hard for you to sit with? You know, Georgia has this impossible burden, not only because she's the only Black trans woman in this archive, and so Angelica Ross has to figure out how to play that on screen, but also because of she's the only one in relation to whom? A bunch of white people, but especially in relation to Agnes, right? Agnes's struggle is, am I going to make it in America not just as a woman, As a white woman, as a middle-class white woman, that actually means fading away, disappearing into the suburbs, having a beautiful domestic life, marrying a man and never being seen again. Okay, not to say it's not hard, but that's quite a reward at the end. For Georgia, the struggle is, can I live and be taken seriously as a Black woman in 1950s America? The reward or the arrival point, right, already shot through was so much difficulty. We're talking about a city of Los Angeles that is profoundly racially segregated in the 1950s. She can't walk down the street safely because police will stop her dressed in, you know, very nicely and right. conservatively and accuse her of sex work.
3: I decided I would wear a pair of capri pants and these Japanese flats. These vice cops picked me up, said I was solicited. I don't need to do that. I have someone taking care of me. They just kept asking, are you a man or a woman? And took me to
2: jail. And and where is the harassment most common? Everywhere.
1: You know, she can't get a job, she says, as a man or a woman. It doesn't matter how she looks because employment has a color line built in. And so Georgia has a very different life, right? But here we are in 2022. And there is an awareness of the disproportionate experiences of violence and structural oppression that Black trans women face in the United States and actually around the world in a way that is absolutely categorically different than even any other kind of trans person. But there's also been this in. Intense, intense investment in images, in the idea of Black trans women, as if they are our culture's redemption, right? That because they are the most oppressed, the liberation we're apparently promising them will be our deliverance. And I think it really, to me, is this kind of narrative of, well, I can't deal with how awful and frankly sinful the world is. So I'm going to pick out the person I think who suffers the most and hold on to an image of them because that helps assuage my guilt and it helps make me feel better because I know in my heart that I don't have a problem with Black trans women, right? I think it's incredibly condescending. It, it drives me up the wall. And so when we are coming to this film, I was like, look, Black trans women have faced this staggering cultural and political problem for a long time. They have a bunch of ingenious solutions to it, but the public never listens to them. They want to keep them confined in a little box as ornamental, as tangential, as symbolic, and not as real people. And so how are we going to deal with that in the film? Because we can't deal with it by restoring Georgia. She doesn't exist beyond these transcripts. We can't make there be more Black trans women in the archive. We can't do that. They were out there, right? Georgia wasn't alone, but we can't run that errand of mercy. Our job is not to rescue Georgia as if like that's something that we could do as filmmakers or as audience members. It's not our task. We need to think about how to show respect for someone like Georgia, but also how to learn a lesson about our investment in remedies Mm. for the problems in our world and how much that falls on. Black trans women, frankly, because they are Black women, right? And American culture loves to count on Black women to do all the heavy lifting of redeeming the nation and gives very, very, very little in return other than self-congratulation. And so I think that in some ways when I came in, because I'm a historian who thinks primarily about race in terms of, you know, gender and sexuality, and because I'm I'm not Black, I'm a non-Black trans woman of color, I really wanted to think about how difficult that is. I wanted to wear that difficulty on my sleeve instead of pretend that I know how to solve it and therefore absolve a sort of collective audience. And one of the counterintuitive ways to deal with that is actually to let Georgia be a little bit. And so we kind of get towards the end of the film and it's like, okay, well, it sucks that we don't know more about Georgia. It's sad that we don't know the full account of Georgia's story. Of course, we don't know what happened to her. But the fact that we don't know, maybe that restores a little bit of agency to her. Maybe that gives a little bit of interiority back to her. And maybe we could imagine that she gets the last laugh there because whatever her life went on to be, for once, it wasn't an object for us to digest and pick apart and ask, oh, how does that make me feel? Well, that's not what Georgia's life was for. She wasn't for us. Mm. Same more nodding from you, Chase.
2: I think this is also where we return to a critical collaboration as key to the way in which the film operates. So that looks like, even just anecdotally, me early on in project development, sitting down with Angelica and speaking out loud about how I felt about encountering Georgia and having Angelica say, I don't need you to do this. I know her. I feel her in my skin. I understand something about this. And me as a director, as a white person, as a transmasculine person, I am stepping back in a moment, not because I'm not engaged, but because I understand that there's a force of moving toward connections that is actually not mine to make. So what happens when we create more space? Mm. So much of this documentary is about the concept of truth. The
0: concept Mm. of truth. And something... Our producer, Liam, said he thought about while watching this film is that many cis people talk about someone's transition using the euphemism, quote unquote, living their truth. Hmm. When we were talking about this, we both were kind of like, "Um, that's kind of condescending and weird. But still, a lot of trans narratives are about trans people either embracing truth or hiding truth. What do we miss out on when that
2: is the focus? I would say at the easiest and most surface level, we lose the ability to change our minds. And there's something really dynamic and important about growth and malleability and flexibility and change over time that a narrative that constrains trans people as being in one place at one moment in time and arriving at another place at another moment in time completely negates the circuitous routes in which we all navigate our lives, emotional, physical, and otherwise.
1: Yeah, I mean, we miss everything. We miss the business of life. We miss the interesting things about being trans. We miss the everyday. We miss, frankly, every single thing that it is to be trans because living truth is an impossible standard. What kind of culture asks people to have to come to a truth in order to be recognized, in order to stand on two feet, and in order to survive, let alone flourish? And who is being asked to do that? I mean, we live in a culture that loves to pretend that we all have some truth hiding on the inside, but we don't. And so the problem then is is that trans people are being asked to live their truth because they're establishing what truth means for a broader culture, for a cis culture. We provide the truth of gender. We provide the truth of what sexuality is. We provide the truth of what medicine can and can't do. We provide the truth of what kind of life you're allowed to live. We set the boundaries by crossing them. This is not a way to treat a group of people, and it's frankly not an interesting thing to ask of trans people. I love that we can give up truth in this film because I have to tell you the feeling for me, it's relief. It's like letting go of the heaviest weight and saying, wow, now that I'm not carrying that around, what what do I know? What am I doing? What is interesting in my life? And it turns out it's a lot of things. Mm. <sighs> Jules,
0: you said that trans people never leave the frame that they're eternal subjects. What would it look like for trans people to be out of or behind
1: the frame? Wow. To be honest, I don't think we know. I don't think that's what Framing Agnes shows us. I think Framing Agnes sets up the problem. Mm -hmm. I think Framing Agnes drops us into a few situations where we get really close. And I think that is part of the process of art making that we're trying to deal with. Is like We have to invent, not... The truth of that, not the actual experience, right? Trans people being behind the frame or walking offset, finally, it happens sometimes. It's that it's illegible, it has no meaning in our culture. And that is profoundly disturbing in one sense, right? It's also elating, it's exhilarating. And so I think to me, the answer to the question in some ways is like, well, we don't know, but that's why we need to keep making stuff, right? That's why we need to create better conditions for trans people not to have to live under that constraint in the first place. And so there's an incredible metaphor that Angelica uses at one point of like the ant underneath the magnifying glass. Mm.
3: You know, more visibility provides us with so much... More opportunities. Those who are in the more privileged parts of our community experience gets more privilege. Those who are in the most vulnerable parts of our community are more vulnerable. And so, sort of, spotlight turns into this sort of magnifying glass. It's like this kid holding a magnifying glass over an ant and burning it. Because we burn up. A lot of people in those margins, we burn up under that spotlight. You know, all eyes are on you, and it's not always a good feeling.
1: First, it's like, turning down the volume, right? It's like lowering that intensity. And We can start to lower that intensity as a culture. We can lower that intensity politically by supporting trans people, making their lives more possible. But then we have to start to follow that talent, right? And let us make things about these dilemmas. And let's start to put words to those incredible enigmatic uh you know, life-altering experiences that for so long trans people just carry around in our flesh and blood, in our in our love, in our anguish, in our relationships, but that are just so unmetabolized and so untapped. And we don't need to make them into things so that people can consume them. We need to do it for us. We need to do it so we can sit together and being in a room and watching trans people watch this film and just having that like, okay. Don't even say anything right now. I just want to feel this with you. And then maybe let's put some words to it tomorrow or a week from today. And 10 years from now, I hope we're sitting down to talk about a film that has finally kind of gotten there and put some language to it, invented a grammar and given us um, some ways to feel through and, and attach meaning to what we know we're capable of right here, right now, but that just has no formal status yet.
0: This is a really fantastic conversation, not just about the film, but just about the the really thoughtful process behind making it. So thank you so much for sharing with me today. Chase, Jules, it was great to have you both.
2: Thanks for having us. Well, thank you so much, Brittany.
0: Thanks again to director and producer Chase Joint and historian and narrator Jules gill peterson Their film, Framing Agnes, opens in Los Angeles on December 14th. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain. Corey Antonio Rose. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. Our editor is Kitty Isley. Engineering support came from
1: Josh Newell.
0: We had fact checking help from Sarah Knight, Bryn Winterbottom. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's our show for today. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.